You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Hello and welcome to Domecast. This is Jordan Schrader hosting this week from the NNO, and with me are Colin Campbell, Craig Jarvis, Will Doran, and a very special guest on the Domecast. Uh, making his, I believe, first appearance on the Domecast, uh, Mark Binker of the NC Insider is with us. Uh, welcome, Mark. Uh, thank you. I just crawled in here looking for a place to take a nap. I didn't know we were doing it. <laughs> yeah, this is a really comfortable. These are comfortable <laughs> chairs uh, in this uh, conference room we're in here in the bowels of the NNO. Uh, so uh, we are going to talk about a lot of things because it was a really busy week at the legislature. This was crossover week. And uh, it was where we found out whether uh, various bills would live or die or um, maybe be somewhere in between where we don't know if they will be revived one day. Uh, And uh, there was uh, a couple of really significant uh, uh, bills that either were that were actually passed through both chambers. Um, So we'll talk about uh, class size. We'll talk about uh, a bill dealing with lawsuits against hog farms. Uh, we'll talk about a uh, bill dealing with body cams and uh, a number of other things, as much as we can get to. Um, but first, it's the ongoing uh, fight between uh, the legislature and uh, Governor Roy Cooper over uh, his authority and over uh, the the partisan makeup of uh, uh, some appointments. Uh, they uh, the, the legislature overrode two. Uh, vetoes uh, of Governor Cooper's this week. Uh, Craig, uh, what was the first one dealt with uh, ethics and elections, uh, and the second one with the Court of Appeals. So just real briefly, uh, what what did the legislature uh, do with these? Well, I think these are ones we've been following on Domecast for a few weeks now, and it's it's starting to get a little difficult to keep track of where these things stand, but the, right, uh, we're kind of we're always like, is this one in court? Is this right. In, in fact, one of them is in court very soon, maybe mm-hmm. as we speak, but um, or right now actually. But anyway, they, um, of course, uh, the legislature overrode the vetoes of the uh, bill merging the elections and ethics boards and the um, reducing the court of appeals from uh, fifteen to twelve members. Uh, the, the governor has sued over the first one, the merger of the boards, c- claiming, among other things, that it deprives him of some certain appointment powers. And um, uh, that one is in court. That's the one that's in court right now. He had uh, initially filed a lawsuit without getting too far into the weeds on this. The law passed, so they decided they needed to file a new lawsuit. And there's a, a temporary a motion for a temporary restraining order to put that on hold in the meantime. So... Um, yeah, the, the other uh, in the other law, we had a really kind of surprising development uh, this week. It was expected that they would override his his veto uh, and shrink the court of appeals from fifteen members to twelve members. And part of the idea was so that uh, the governor would not be able to appoint somebody to uh, the seats of people who are retiring. But we had a surprise retirement. So uh, tell us about that. Yeah, we had uh, on Monday the governor's office announced the uh, retirement of. Uh, of Doug McCullough, a, uh, who'd been on the Court of Appeals for I'm not sure how many years. Uh, before that, he'd been a federal prosecutor. Um, but he um, was caught up in this, well, a couple things. One, they there's a mandatory retirement age of 72 in the state. So he was the first one, the first of three Republican uh, incumbents on the Court of Appeals who were going to hit that retirement age in the next couple of years. So... Um, 
the governor quickly announced, as soon as he announced the, uh, the uh, resignation of Doug McCullough, he announced the appointment of John Arrowwood, who had tried to run before and was unsuccessful. I think he's a Charlotte attorney. Um, uh, so that kind of, uh, I'm not quite sure of the legal implications of that, but it seemed to have kept the governor one step well, ahead of the legislature. Yeah, basically what it does is it keeps the Court of Appeals from shrinking as quickly as it would because mm -hmm. he, he got this in under the wire, right? He got it right. in before the veto override took effect. Right. So you will still have a 15-member Court of Appeals at least until next year when the next two judges to hit their mandatory retirement ages hit those ages. And, you know, one thing to note about Judge McCullough, he wasn't just doing this by happenstance or, hey, I want to take a beach vacation extra early. He said pretty pointedly on his way out, I'm doing this so this new law doesn't hobble the Court of Appeals. He was reacting very directly to it. Um, and I think he was hoping a little bit that, that his early retirement might make a statement and might cause lawmakers to think twice, but that didn't work out. No, that's maybe not surprising. They, this totally came from the legislature. The, nobody at the administrative office of the courts or nobody on the courts, current or past, came out in favor of it. In fact, several justices or, uh, or at least appellate court judges came out against it. Uh, so it was, uh, you know, it was a maneuver. There's been a theme of, of, of uh, getting as much power from the governor uh, as the legislature can. And it's actually a fight that started when McCrory was in office. So it's continuing. If the legislature had expected this, was there anything they could have done to have, have prevented this? He signed, the, he vetoed the bill, I believe, late, late in the week. Um, and so I don't know if they could have come back in and they would have had to move faster than is typical and particularly the house has rules on veto overrides that make them kind of come back and sit in the cooler for a little bit before they act on vetoes. so they would have had to act outside of their normal order in order to really race this and i don't think it was expected i i, I mean i think a couple of us were sitting down at the legislature on monday morning when this rolled out and we went well, that's clever, and and uh, you know, sort of race to to cover it. So, and of course, Cooper appointed a Democrat, John Arrowwood, to take the spot. Um, but there's some legislation that's being considered that would uh, limit his ability to appoint uh, people of different parties from the person who is leaving. Right, Craig? You uh... Uh, um, well, there's an uh, there is that threat of laws that would allow the. Uh, that would diminish the governor's ability to make certain appointments. And I mean, I think we're talking about the, the legislation to replace the vacancy in the Senate and the U.S. Senate and uh, to replace judges and district attorneys and uh, this merger with the elections board. That would limit the powers that he currently has. Yeah, I mean, it kind of draws on for years and years, the, the state board of elections got appointed because or through a mechanism whereby the party leadership of the state Republican Party and state Democratic Party would forward a bunch of names and the governor would draw three from one party, two from the other, and you'd have a state board of elections. Well, it seems like lawmakers have said, that's a heck of an idea and are extending it, or at least in the process of trying to extend it to a bunch of other offices. So instead of giving uh, the governor free reign to pick from you know, anybody he wants or recommendations from the local bar association or however the particular uh, vacancy filling procedure worked, they want to make sure, well, if we're replacing a re Republican judge, we get another Republican judge in there. If we're replacing a Democrat, we get another Democrat in there. Uh, and and by the way, he's not going to just be able to choose any Republican or any Democrat. We're going to give him a list uh, from which to choose, which uh, I, I think kind of got noted when, when the 
Republican Party put out its uh, uh, list of folks who they would like to appoint to the newly board, merged ethics and elections merger, you know, some of the names were really familiar as people who had been involved in election controversies. And, and <laughs> I think a lot of us went, really, four Edgars? Okay. Uh, that's a name we know. So <laughs> Seasoned politicians. Yeah. And this goes to kind of the central point of the lawsuit over the merger of the Elections and Ethics Board in that the court ruled in the governor's favor. So the legislature came back and retooled the law and said, okay, here we were, you, the governor actually gets to make the appointment. But the asterisk is, you know, from the list that we give you. So he doesn't really have free reign. Okay. So this is happening on a lot of fronts. Colin, you wrote about uh, something related in terms of uh, uh, – the partisan uh, nature of elections and appointments. Uh, you wrote about ballot order. Um, what are the Rep Republicans looking to do on ballot order? Yeah, this was one which was sort of sold as a uh, good government sort of bill um, until you actually look at what the current status of things is. So currently the way ballot order works on a general election is whatever party the governor is, uh, the candidates and partisan races from that party will be listed first. So last year in November, obviously Pat McCrory was the governor, so from everything from president on down the ballot, uh, the Republicans were first, followed by the Democrats. Uh, under this bill that uh, passed the House this week, that would change to a more randomized order. Um, it wouldn't be based on party at all. Instead, it would either be alphabetical or reverse alphabetical order with, by the names of the candidates. Um, and that uh, between those two options would be decided by a coin flip to the Board of Elections. So no one party would have the advantage over the other in terms of uh, whose name gets to be first, because that can, I think according to a number of studies I've seen, uh, influence, particularly in uh, low information races, who people pick. If you're working your way down the ballot and you're thinking, I don't really care at this point. Uh, this name looks fine. This name looks fine. Then the person whose name is first uh, has some level of advantage. So uh, the idea, the, the way this is presented is, you know, this is fair. This is good government. The Democrats point out, well, it wasn't an idea you came up with last year when Republicans were going to be first on the ballot, but now that we have a Democratic governor and 2018 Democrats would be first on the ballot, uh, you're just trying to sort of give that advantage away and make sure that Democrats don't have it. And this is similar to how they do it in primaries? Uh, primaries, yeah. it's it's. Uh, I think they pick like a, na a letter out of a hat or something, and they start with that letter and go alphabetical through the primaries because, of course, you know, when you're in the primary, everybody's the same party, so there's no partisan advantage to, you know, anybody getting ahead of the other in, in ballot order. Right. Okay. Well, it seems like every week we uh, we kind of hear about a new a new idea that's uh, well there there is as a matter of fact another a couple of other election ideas uh, Senator Andrew Brock passed a couple bills one would make it easier for unaffiliated candidates to qualify for the ballot by lowering the threshold of the signatures they have to collect and also reducing the percentage of. Uh, a vote you need to, to avoid a runoff or a second primary from 40% to 30%. So those bills probably have a pretty good chance of, of succeeding. Well, and there, there's also the um, moving, you know, we had the March primary last year, right. uh, and Brock ran through a, as part of, you know, about five elections-related bills right. that ran through one night with barely any notice. You would have a permanent switch from May primaries to the March a March primary date. That does a couple things. One, it locks in the earlier date, but it also keeps North Carolina out of trouble with getting its primary too early. You might remember last year there was this question, is North Carolina going to jump the gun and get penalized for delegates at the convention? This would keep North Carolina out of the penalty with the national parties, but it would also just sort of affix a 
permanent early primary date. So, you know, everybody who's gotten really used to May primaries, you'll have to get used to March primaries, I guess. And Craig, Senator Brock, I believe it was Senator Brock, also had something to say about when the polls close uh, oh, yeah. and, and what's been happening in Durham. <laughs> That's very interesting. That turned on out to be uh, let's bash uh, Durham some more but uh, Durham has had a history of some problems with on on election nights with in uh, most uh, recently uh, on the in the general election with the gubernatorial race where where uh, Pat McCrory was leading all night and suddenly uh, he wasn't as soon as these Durham votes counted came in and then it turned out Durham had big delays anyway and got and requested and got some extension to keep some I can think eight precincts open uh, so this uh, precinct would say okay if you're gonna ask for more time for your precinct which screwed up then the whole state has to have the same amount of time which is a little uh, daunting and the um, uh, Democrats said well you're just trying to intimidate boards of elections because nobody's going to want to take that that task so uh, that I'm not sure if that'll succeed or not but it's potentially a pretty sweeping uh, bill yeah I think Brock's quote was that uh, Durham got an extra at bat in the yeah. game everybody else had to play nine and got to play nine innings um, well there was a, a really significant deal early in the week it feels like it was a long time ago but it was early this week uh, dealing with uh, the class size bill that's been uh, uh, so contentious um, Mark what uh, what did they come up with they basically came up with what amounts to a one-year delay in kind of the harshest impacts. And this is all about North Carolina has some limits in law on you know how many kids are supposed to be in early grade classrooms, K through three, and then how many you can actually average out to and, and how much you can actually max out a class at, at. And if you look at that law, and I think there's a giant asterisk right about here. But if you look at that law, you know, Republican lawmakers can be forgiven for saying, well, we passed this law and we gave you money to fund it. So why aren't we seeing class sizes at this level? And so when school districts came in this year and said, hey, when you lock these in, you kind of messed us up and we're going to have to lay off a bunch of specialist teachers, you you could sort of forgive them for saying, well, we're confused. We thought we gave you money to lower this down. Well, the other side of this argument is one, yeah, but you've cut us in other places. And by the way, we've always sort of had some flexibility here so that uh, we can pay for things that maybe you didn't envision or necessarily account for. And one of those things that they haven't really laid out as a line item for years and years and years is uh, art, music, PE teachers. Uh, so we've had over the, what, the past two months this big hue and cry of school districts saying, oh, we're going to have this really huge problem. We're not going to have classrooms to fit all these kids. And by the way, we're going to have to lay off a bunch of teachers. This at least kicks the can down the road a year on the majority of, of what people would, would say are the ill effects of this law taking effect. Uh, it, it eventually gets down to locking down that class size in, in the second year of the bill, uh, but came along with this promise, although not a promise in writing, not a you know a commitment that you can really hold them to that, oh, yes, we'll fund, you know, if we find out it's necessary, we'll fund the specialist teachers uh, uh, separately uh, on down the road. Now, the asterisk to this is Republic, you know, Republican lawmakers have said, we haven't been able to get the data that we need to see what's actually going on out there. School districts have said, we've told you everything that you need to know. There's sort of this uh, uh, still battle going on between 
the assertion of, well, are you really using the money we gave you correctly? And school districts saying, yes, and we need more. Um, you know, maybe if only there was a fact checker at the newspaper, they could dive into this subject. I don't know. <laughs> All right. Well, I think I've got your next uh, truthometer. Uh, so school districts are okay with this? They're okay-ish. Uh, I think what we heard out of, uh, out of them was, well, this will at least give us a, a one-year reprieve. We're not going to send out pink slips this summer. Uh, I, I think what it does is it creates, you know, a year from now we may be sitting in this exact same situation going, well, okay, what's going to happen? And remember, next year the legislature doesn't come back till May if they follow their normal pattern and practice. So you could have school districts saying, hey, we don't have that extra funding yet, and by the way, we have to put out our budgets, and uh, where are you state lawmakers? And lawmakers aren't necessarily back yet. Uh, to, to work on the second year budget. So uh, I think a lot of people look at this as going, well, great, we've got a year to work on this, but we've got a year to worry about this as well. So that bill goes to the governor to sign. And it's, it's oh, it's already, he's already signed he's, it. He's, yeah, he's already he, signed it. He did that. I think he signed it within an hour of Last getting night, it. That's so. right. And the other bill that they sent to the governor, probably there are several, but one bill, major one they sent to the governor dealt with uh, lawsuits against uh, hog farms. Uh, and uh, basically, there had been these lawsuits against uh, Murphy Brown, the hog producer, and there was 20-some lawsuits, and there was an effort to curb those, uh, but they ended up dropping the part that uh, actually does anything to those lawsuits. So what's what's left in that, in that bill that passed? Uh, and others in here will have to correct me because I, I think we've, we we need to get Murawski <laughs> yeah exactly right? yeah. Uh, um, what's what's left is a a bill that limits the damage if you're living next to a hog operation and you make the case look because of the smell or something else I'm not able to have the full enjoyment of my house uh, you can still get some damages but there's there's essentially a cat you can sort of get up to the value of your property but not beyond that some of the the common law things where you were able to recover more uh are, are taken out by this bill so the agricultural interests and you saw agriculture commissioner steve troxler stand up and say well you shouldn't be able to get more than you got uh out of a lawsuit and and they pitch it as creating certainty for the agricultural operations uh i think the folks on the environmental side see this as uh, lessening the incentives for a hog operation or a chicken raising operation or something else like that from from curbing their bad practices. They're like, oh, well, you know, you can just sort of factor in the cost of doing business and uh, go on with your day. They also point out that a lot of people who live near these large-scale industrial operation or large-scale farming operations are poor and tend to be minorities and whatnot. Uh, I guess at this point I'll, I'll include a reference to a representative Jimmy Dixon's rant that it's uh, inappropriate to uh, portray these as factories farms. These are these are just uh, hardworking North Carolinians and small farming operations and, and, and the bringing up factory farms is just a, a, a slander upon them. Uh, I have not personally been down other than to kind of drive by them on the way to the beach, so I can't personally testify one way or the other. Yeah, uh, and as you said, John Murawski's been writing about this, and he actually went down to sniff it for himself. So he'll we'll have his his story in the Sunday uh, in and O. Of course, the you paper going to be uh, scratching. Yeah, I was going to say it's, uh, the video. There's also you can also oh, see it online, but it's not in smell vision uh, <laughs> uh, fortunately or unfortunately. But actually, the, 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 there was kind of a uh, 
interesting exchange about the smells, right? By Dixon, uh, he talked about uh, it's all uh, the the smells are kind of worth it. Yeah, well, and he he said, you know, when you when you smell the the hog lagoon, what you should do is close your eyes and and, and conjure the smell of bacon and eggs for, for cooking in the morning. That you know, very obviously a nod to you know you need to have the bad smell to get the good stuff on your breakfast place. I I, I will say I was sitting near a group of environmental lobbyists who who just. They, they were very put out by that particular uh, uh, line. So. <laughs> I feel like thinking about the smell of that would make bacon less appetizing. But okay. <laughs> yeah, let's not mix fecal lagoons and, <laughs> uh, and, and bacon and eggs. Um, okay, well, uh, a few other things that we should touch on at least briefly here. Uh, so uh, one of them is the body cams bill that went through. Uh, and uh, this, of course, follows on last year's big debate, uh, in which they passed a bill that basically said that you need a court order to be able to see most body cam footage. There were some exceptions uh, for people affected, people in the footage. Um, they did look at uh, scaling that back and making it a little more permissive this year, uh, right? But w- what, what did they end up doing? Well, when they passed the bill last year, there was kind of widespread agreement that this was a first step. This whole new body cam thing was emerging more than ever, and uh, they would probably revisit it and make some tweaks. So uh, Representative um, uh, Faircloth, John Faircloth, the former police chief, with help from uh, Representative O'Neill, whose first name I just forgot, used to be a sheriff, I think. Alan. Alan. Alan McNeil. They they kind of worked on this, although it was mostly Faircloth doing and he talked to a lot of different people and made some changes that they thought would would be workable to make to give uh, other people uh, access to these these pretty restricted uh, uh, videos. In which uh, so he came up with a bill that would include other law enforcement agencies if you're working on an investigation together or you need to find a suspect or a witness uh, or um, uh, let's see there was something oh for police training purposes you could use a video for that. Uh, also, this bill would let city managers or county managers get their hands on it if it was needed for evaluating how the officer had done his job, kind of a personnel thing. The real contentious point was uh, uh, letting city councils, boards of commissioners, and uh, uh, police review boards, I think there's only a handful of them in the state at all, Charlotte has one, uh, letting them re- look at these things in closed sessions if they sign a confidentiality agree- agreement. That's the basics. Hmm. Uh, and, and it was that last part, the, the part that would allow for essentially kind of the political people in town, the city councils and the review boards, to look at it that blew up into an amendment fight on the floor on Thursday. Uh, basically, you had Bill Brawley out of Charlotte say, we should not be surprised that political people act like politicians. And if you allow them in a really heated, contentious situation, we can't really rely on these city council members to keep their confidentiality pledges, essentially, especially because there's no real penalty for them uh, for walking out of the room and saying, well, this is what I saw on the tape. Uh, so that amendment got battled over on the House floor for a good long time and then eventually passed. So uh, it expands the world of access to these body cam videos, but uh, city council members and town council members are kind of out of that loop at this point in, in, in the bill's life. Yeah, that amendment passed by just two votes, actually, and uh, the bill itself was, was overwhelmingly approved, but uh, it just seemed to peel back all sorts of layers of subtext and, and uh, behind-the-scenes things going on here within the Mecklenburg delegation with Democrats and Republicans, with minority communities and, uh, 
and this all most of the conversation was about the Keith Lamont Scott uh, po- fatal police shooting last year, which happened t- ten days before this law took effect. Uh, so and that ended up being a lot about police uh, video footage, uh, right? And then so the, in that one, they they could release the video and were able to release yeah. video, right? Because the law had not yet uh, taken effect where they would need a judge's order. Correct. Although they didn't just hand it over willingly. They took quite a bit of pressure, including uh, news media legal actions, or I, I, I believe, as I recall. So police aren't used to releasing this kind of thing. I mean, there's a basic mindset is you don't you say as little as possible for the integrity of the investigation. You know, the fewer people who know the facts, then the easier it is going to be to figure out who did what. Well, and I think that I guess the other thing to point out that came up during the debate on this particular amendment was city councils still have the right that everybody else has that if you have a particular interest in a particular police shooting, you can go to court and ask a judge, judge, would you please release this video for, you know, whatever purpose for, you know, and and city councils and town councils can still do that, but they don't have the the sort of express route that they they would have had under the original version of the bill. And of course, you mentioned the Keith Lamont Scott shooting. The aftermath of that was, of course, massive protests in Charlotte and a couple of days of, of even rioting. Uh, and uh, there's also been that's come up too in the legislature. Yeah, the legislature really this week has loved to talk about some Charlotte protests, and uh, we we heard a lot about it this week uh, with a couple of different bills uh, that target the protesters uh, with varying results. Uh, the one that we were paying the most attention to back at the beginning of the week. Uh, was the economic terrorism bill, which was the term they'd come up with for this bill uh, sponsored by Representative John Torbett, who lives near Charlotte in Gaston County, um, that would have uh, offered sort of additional criminal statute. I mean, obviously, if someone goes out and blocks the road, you could charge them with impeding traffic. Uh, If they break stuff, you can charge them with vandalism. Uh, This would be sort of an additional statute on top of that. So if someone's protesting and they're blocking traffic or they're getting violent or they're breaking stuff, you could charge them uh, with this economic terrorism thing. Uh, This was a bill that uh, had a very contentious debate in committee. A great quote from uh, Mickey Mashaw, who is is always uh, an interesting voice on some of these protest issues because he was active in the civil rights uh, movement back in the 60s and is uh, still in the legislature today, well into his 80s. Uh, And he basically looks at the bill and says, you know, you could have charged me with all of these things. I've, I've done it, and I, I, I did it for civil rights, and are you going to say that that was a, a bad thing for me to do? And I think he, he said the uh, the bill should, something to the effect of rot in the streets of hell. Um, but the interesting thing in this bill was that uh, in committee, two Republicans, Chuck McGrady, who's generally fairly moderate, and uh, Dana Bumgardner, who is uh, very conservative, both voted against it, which was enough to, uh, along with the Democrats, uh, kill the bill. Uh, Bumgardner was concerned was concerned was that uh, local leaders need to be enforcing the existing laws anyway, and he thinks they didn't do that in Charlotte. Uh, McGrady felt like that you know the title was too provocative and that perhaps it wasn't really a necessary step. Uh, and I think they both got angered by John Torbett when he, uh, in his final uh, plea for the bill, basically said, "If you don't vote for my bill, you're condoning uh, the violence that that broke out on a few occasions in, in Charlotte last year." And so. People were not happy to, to hear that, and so the bill went down in flames and now cannot be considered the rest of the session. And that would have required police to clear the streets. Yeah, too, that was right. They thing would is, not have given the option to just sort of let things play yeah, out. Yeah, and, and that's the thing is a lot of times in cities like Charlotte, I think Durham has had some protests like this as well, where some people are in the streets. Sometimes the police will wait a little while and figure, well, if they're only blocking traffic for 20 or 30 minutes, maybe this will disperse on their own and we won't have to, you know, butt heads with these guys. Um, 
this would require the local law enforcement jump in immediately is clear any sort of uh, traffic obstruction that's out there. Well, that's an economic issue, too, um, you know, talking about economic terrorism with this bill. I mean, obviously, the bill itself wasn't terrorism. But, you know, these if the cities did have to, you know, put out dozens of extra police officers, pay them all overtime for several hours clearing the streets, you know, that's that's a lot of money for a, for a city government to have to come up with all of a sudden. Yeah, and there's another measure that passed uh, this week that would allow, uh, I think there's some sort of financial penalties against that. I think it may have been in the economic terrorism bill, so it may have gone down in flames. But a lot of different moving pieces and all these uh, little bits of legislation. So as that bill was going down in one committee, on the other end of the fourth floor of the legislative office building, there was another uh, bill targeting protesters that actually did go through committee and then made it to the floor and passed later in the week. Uh, And that was a bill addressing... Uh, people who are on these roads that get blocked and end up running over a protester um, and to what extent they could be sued for that for negligence or whatever. Um, And this would allow, uh, if you're exercising, I think, in the the law terms that do care, um, you would be not held liable for having injured a protester who happens to be running into the street when you're trying to drive down the street. So how do you exercise do care when you're running over a person? I'm asking for a friend. Yeah, I, you know, it wasn't very well spelled well, out in the law, so that was a lot of the concern about the bill was that, you know, it's a, it's a fairly big loophole for a lawyer to then come back and argue, well, he was exercising due care, but he had to get to work. He had to get to the hospital, yeah, so well, that guy was in the way. The, the satirical version of this, I think, would be, well, he didn't strap a cow catcher to the front of his car, strap, put on a helmet, and gun it down the street. Um, but, you know, yeah, what what is due care? I think the reason this one maybe had a little bit more uh, favorable push behind it was because everybody could sort of imagine, oh, I'm driving down the street one day and all of a sudden the protest breaks out and I shouldn't necessarily be held liable because somebody decides to run in the road to try to block Yeah, traffic. someone actually runs into your car. But there was an interesting argument made by uh, Robert Reeves, who's an attorney down in Sanford, one of the uh, House members, that apparently under North Carolina law there's an issue between like – contributory and strict negligence, which is all this sort of legal mumbo-jumbo. Basically, as he described it, um, if you run out into the street right now, um, that's enough of a you-cause-this-problem that there would really be no way to recover a personal injury case if you ran into the guy, whether it's somebody who just, you know, is mentally ill and runs out into the street or whether it's a protester doing it in a deliberate act of protest. Yeah, I think North Carolina and our, our lawyer listeners will have to correct me if I'm wrong, but I think North Carolina is the only state in the country that has this, or one of a few that has this law, where if you are even 1% responsible for something that happens to you, if if the other person is 99% responsible, you still can't sue them for liability. Yeah, and contributory negligence is something that's come up at, down at the legislature in high-profile cases before. Uh, there was a young man who I think was changing a tire by the side of the road and his you know car tire was sort of partially on the white line that demarcates the side of the road he got hit and killed and uh it it was considered that well that parking in the wrong way you know that 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 little much wrong was contributory negligence and and indemnified uh the person who hit him so this is this is something that comes up every so often down there so it would already be very uh difficult to, to sue somebody if you 
purposely walked out in the middle of the street and then yeah. got hit. It, it sounds like uh, okay, but this this might yet add yet another layer of uh, of protection for that person. But I guess we should underline the fact that if this bill passes, um, you cannot just go run down uh, people in the streets regardless of what they are doing. Yeah, we um, we do not endorse uh, running people over under any circumstances. Yes, or jumping out in the streets either, for that matter. I guess in front of cars. Um, but with that. Uh, disclaimer (laughs) just to indemnify us against all uh, uh, legal recourse Um, so uh, uh, Will you wrote about you you had a fact check this week on uh, Richard Burr and he had something to say about North Korea and this is uh, a very timely considering um, we're seeing the the failed missile test and uh, everything else going on um, with uh, with that country right now. So what did Burr actually say? Yeah, well, there's obviously been, um, I think the phrase that the media always loves with North Korea is saber rattling. And there's been a lot of saber rattling recently with... Does anyone actually have a saber <laughs> to rattle? And do they rattle? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, Another we'll have to fact. Yeah, I'll, I'll fact see, check that next. <laughs> I could see Kim Jong-un with a saber. Yeah, me. yeah. I don't think... Uh, Probably Richard Burr has a saber. Unlike him. <laughs> he didn't bring one to Youngsville when he made this statement. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, yes. Um, so he was in Youngsville, like Colin mentioned. Uh, Colin was there for this uh, talk that Burr gave um, to, I think, the local Chamber of Commerce there. Yeah, it was a bunch of different Chamber of Commerce groups from that uh, area of the state. And he just ran down a whole kind of list of salient issues. And one thing he said is that people should be very concerned about North Korea right now because... Um, Basically, the last five years that Kim Jong-un has been in power, they have been just hugely ramping up their missiles, Um, he said, you know, by a factor of 20. And, you know, I mean, you don't have to be an expert in foreign policy to know that North Korea has always been fairly fond of missile tests and even before Kim Jong-un came into power. So we looked into that, and actually um, it's for the most part true. Um, We gave it a mostly true. They have definitely... um, been doing a lot more testing. I talked to some experts who have been following North Korea for decades. They say that, yeah, they've really put an increased focus on their missiles because they think that basically, uh, you know, they can't really win in a uh, in a conventional war against the U.S. if it comes to that. So they've basically been fo- like focusing on uh, special forces and commandos and missiles to try and, uh, you know, get one big initial strike in on South Korea and, you know, obviously they're trying to create a missile that can hit uh, the U.S. Uh, that was their most recent failed attempt, was uh, trying to perfect something like that. Uh, you know, I don't think they were actually going to launch that one at the U.S., but they're trying to show off the technology before it blew up. Um, but, yeah, um, Richard Burr does definitely have a point. Some of the experts we talked to warned that, you know, a lot of this is more political than actually scientific. They might give off the... Uh, the impression that they actually know more than they do and have better technology than they do. So some of these people were, you know, kind of cautioning against, you know, Burr's uh, statement to people to be very concerned about this. They're saying, eh, <laughs> you know, it's more political than uh, than militaristic. But, uh, but yeah, uh, missiles in the news a lot, and they uh, it's definitely been ramping up lately. So hopefully we aren't at war by the time our next uh, Domecast <laughs> comes around. But we'll see. Um, Well, uh, thanks. We'll uh, take a quick break here before we uh, do Headliner of the Week. We'll be right back. Come on, smile. Honey, he's still not smiling. 
Maybe he's not a smiler. Yeah, maybe he's just not a happy baby. Maybe he's just being a boy. Or maybe he's teething. Maybe it's just a phase. Maybe he has autism, and we can definitely do something to help. Maybe is all you need to find out more about autism. No big, joyful smiles by six months is one early sign. Learn the others at AutismSpeaks.org slash signs. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. And welcome back to Domecast. Now it's time for Headliner of the Week, where we talk about the most important or influential or interesting uh, person, place, thing in the week's news in North Carolina politics. Um, Will, Doran, who's your Headliner of the Week? Um, well, my headliners are pigs. Um, all of them. <laughs> well, at least all of the ones in eastern North Carolina. And if you've seen the, the map that goes with the, the story that we're running from John Rowski, there are a lot of them. Yes, um, People are fond of saying that Duplin County has more pigs than people. That might also be another one for me to fact check at some mm-hmm. point in the future. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it's, I mean, you know, you just heard us talk about it for a while. There's all of these, uh, uh, these bills about, you know, hog farms. And, you know, obviously there's a lot of issues connected with pollution. And, I mean, this has been an issue for North Carolina going back to the 90s. Um, you know, obviously, you know, back then hurricanes, flooding, all sorts of environmental things. Um, but with the you know these lawsuits uh, these lawsuit bills I should say marching ahead, um, you know we've uh, we've given a lot of uh, thought to the pig byproducts like uh, bacon and waste. But uh, yeah, little piggies themselves. My headliner of the week. All right, uh, lots of appetizing stories uh, in the news this week about pigs and pig farms. So pigs are in the hat for headliner of the week. Um, Mark. Binker, welcome to uh, Headliner of the Week. Who's your headliner? Uh, well, you know, as we've been talking about, it's crossover week, this self-inflicted deadline on the General Assembly by which they say, oh, we really have to pass all the non-budget bills uh, by this date certain or, or else they, they die and fall away. Of course, next week they'll promptly start plotting ways to get around it for all the stuff they didn't do but wanted to. Uh, but as we watched all the lawmakers scurry all over the building, you know, you had folks behind the scenes, legislative staff uh, really scrambling to keep up with all the, the work uh, going on and keep the lawmakers going. Um, as a, a, a representative of the legislative staff, I, I am nominating uh, Grace Rogers, who is uh, David Lewis's L.A., uh, somebody who, you know, helps kind of run traffic cop in his office as well as keeps his fridge stocked with sweet tea and by the way is his Mm -hmm. mother-in-law my colleague Lauren Hirsch wrote a story this week about uh, legislative assistants who happen to be related in one way or another to the lawmakers for whom they work Uh, so Grace Rogers as as a uh, emblematic of of those dozen or so individuals as well as the legislative staff writ large is my nominee okay the uh, overworked and probably usually underappreciated legislative staff. Uh, it is interesting. There's about a, a ten or a dozen uh, family members, right, who are working as LAs for their uh, for their lawmakers. You've got a, a son, you've got a uh, several spouses, and then uh, and you've got mother-in-law. Yep. So uh, Grace Rogers in the hat for headliner of the week, along with uh, pigs. Uh, Craig Jarvis, who's your headliner of the week? 
I'm going to go with Senator Andy Wells, a uh, Republican from uh, Catawba County. He's running one of the uh, regulatory rollback bills this year affecting the environment and does a couple things. One is pretty uh, significant and widespread. It has to do with uh, uh, rolling back um, what they call riparian buffers, the protected area around streams and rivers um, that are supposed to help, you know, with the ecosystem and avoid pollution, that sort of thing. And it's um, including uh, uh, imposing a requirement that no locality could do more than what the state does. And and I believe would take away all buffers on the the main part of the uh, Catawba uh, reservoir river, I guess down in his neck of the woods. He's a commercial real in the commercial real estate game, uh, so you can see why what his motivation is there. He coined the term veneer environmentalism that the buffers don't really do anything except make make people feel good. They look like they're doing something good. But my main point to wrap this up quickly. The, uh, I think the, there was one provision in the bill that I think has actually gotten much more attention, which would be to repeal the ban on plastic bags on the Outer Banks. And uh, this was something that uh, former, uh, for those of you who have been around more than just a little while, remember uh, Senator Mark Basnight, who kind of ran the show for a long time over there. He's from Manio. He pushed this through about seven years ago, the ban on these bags. And it was a real big point with him. In fact, I think one of the more and more of the tourism boards have this ban on their website saying, you know, we ban plastic bags. We care about this simple thing. Well, Wells thinks that this um, is pretty ineffective. It's a big cost to the merchants and is just not really anything more than veneer uh, environmentalism. So that's that's uh, that's why I'm picking Senator Wells. Okay. All right. The, uh, the ban that says the uh, stores on the barrier islands cannot sell uh, plastic bags. I think they have to sell... Uh, uh, paper bags or tell have people bring their own uh, cloth. Uh, that ban may be in trouble. Uh, so Andy Wells is in the hat for headliner of the week, along with Grace Rogers and the many hogs of southeastern North Carolina. Um, Colin Campbell, who's your headliner of the week? I'm going with uh, Senate Majority Leader Harry Brown, who's uh, back in action this week. He's been kind of uh, quiet for a while, probably working on the Senate budget that's supposed to roll out in a few weeks, so we'll be hearing more from him. But this week had a bill that uh, didn't get a whole lot of attention in the crush of crossover, but it involved uh, another sales tax uh, shift. He's been uh, promoting a, a number of plans over the last couple of years that would uh, redirect some of the sales tax revenue uh, currently going to urban counties to rural counties that he says are, are desperately in need of, uh, of this kind of funding. Uh, the latest uh, involves uh, a portion of the local option sales tax that's currently distributed according to this really odd formula called the adjustment factor that was set up back in the 80s and gives certain counties more weight, but it's not really based on wealth or population. So uh, Dare County gets the the best benefit from this, while Columbus County, one of the state's poorest, as Brown points out, uh, gets the least. So he would is proposing, and this passed the Senate uh, the other day, uh, now goes to the House, uh, to change that system to one that's based on the economic tier system that the Department of Commerce has. So the uh, a little bit more of that money would go to the rural counties that are uh, more impoverished than to the urban counties, uh, but they're all fairly close together, and it's still based a, a good chunk on, on population. But the end result is that uh, we don't really know the specifics because different groups had different estimates for the impact of this during the uh, committee meeting where it was discussed. So for a county like uh, Durham, you could see several million dollars uh, lost. Wake could lose several million, or according to Harry Brown, just $90,000. So no one's really sure 
And the bill went through the Senate before the formal numbers from the legislators' uh, fiscal research division came out, uh, to my knowledge. So uh, we don't really know the impact, but it's now headed to the House, and perhaps we'll get better numbers if the House uh, moves forward with the bill. Yeah, and that's one that accomplishes the unusual feat of, of benefiting Charlotte while at the same time hurting Wake County. I'm not sure how that math yeah. works out. Well, it was really funny to see the, the legislature's uh, vote count on this one because, you know, normally you see all these party line votes in the Senate, and this one it was just like you could— pinpoint every single name okay that person voted yes because their county wins that person voted no because their county doesn't win yeah it sounds like one of those bills where everybody pulls out the spreadsheet of all the counties and goes down and says yep i can vote for this yeah or i can't yeah and certainly the cities and and counties have been lobbying fairly hard on that because uh if if you're going to lose money you're going to try to make it stop Mm -hmm. okay well senate majority leader harry brown uh who is uh, pursuing the latest of several uh, efforts on this is in the hat for headliner of the week, along with uh, Andy Wells, Grace Rogers, and Pigs. Um, I probably shouldn't uh, choose another animal winner because you know <laughs> I just, we do that. I do that too often. But uh, <laughs> so uh, I'm going to go with uh, with Grace Rogers uh, because of all the. Uh, uh, I can't even imagine how little sleep these these staff are getting this week if uh, if reporters are are getting. And apparently, she makes so. Uh, is it sweet tea or something? Well, was it listed in that yeah, her, story? Her husband. Oh, her husband. Her, her okay. husband makes it, and she she merely transports it. Yeah, but but keeps it. Stocked yeah. for these long weeks when everyone yeah. is really drained. Very smart. Well, the prize for winning headliner of the week, uh, Mark Banker, is that you get to come back. Well, uh, sweet. So uh, uh, we hope to see you back in future weeks on the Domecast. Uh, you think that'll work out? All right. Thumbs up. They can't see your thumb up. Yeah. All right. Good. <laughs> All right. It's not TV it's, anymore, Mark. It's, <laughs> it's radio. Uh, <laughs> What? <laughs> and and with that, uh, for Colin Campbell, Craig Jarvis, Mark Binker, and Will Doran, I'm Jordan Schrader signing off from Domecast. Please join us next week. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to the Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.